Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Hollywood Magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood Magazine. A silly or scary wee girl that can't do her sums, and this kind of really patronising thing of not, I mean he did engage with the point she made later, but you know initially not engaging with, with the point she made, but, but with the person and just the put down of the person, and in this particularly sexist way. Um, you know, in a way that's deeply insulting because the issue is this, Scotland could be an independent country. There is still an argument about whether it should be an independent country. But what doesn't enter the debate is... Absolutely. I, I really loved the bit that she said in her... Um in a statement that she, you know, she bears the scars of everything that has happened to her, quite literally, and that she's not going to be defined by them, but she is going to celebrate them. So this is the part of the podcast where Liam Kukoda and I normally talk about the changing political fortunes for our elected members in a kind of good week, bad week type of scenario. And for Liam, it's still a very good week because he's on his halls, breaking in his new puppy, so to speak. And so I'm joined by another of Hollywood's journalists, Jenny Davidson. So Jenny, who would you say has had a good week? You've, you've got to say it's Amy Callahan. I mean, she... It's an amazing story, actually. I mean, she's a 28-year-old MP. She's battled through so much. You know, she'd already battled through cancer. And then in June this year, she had a, a brain hemorrhage, obviously a very, very serious situation. And then just yesterday, just this um, this week, she's uh, she's been back on Twitter saying she's beginning to recover. She's, yeah, she's able to communicate herself. So she's back in touch with constituents and things, which, you know, is, is great news. Yeah. And, you know, across all parties, you, you can't but be pleased that someone who's had such a, a serious health scare is, is back up and working again. Yeah. I mean, by all accounts, um, I don't actually know Amy Callahan, but by all accounts, she's a really decent person. And when she won that seat from Joe Swinson um, in 2000, 19, the East Dumbartonshire seat, I think people were just delighted for her because, as you say, very young, she'd had cancer, really battled through that. And I think from what people say to me, she's got an incredible resilience. But I think this, um, the brain hemorrhage was pretty terrifying. And I think people were very cautious about saying anything until she was ready to, to come out. And as you say, say, let our constituents know that she's starting to get better. I think she said, I've still got a wee bit to go. Yeah, but I mean, from, you know, where she, she must have been in June to now, that's, you know, it's just incredible. Absolutely. I, I really loved the bit that she said in her um, in a statement that she, you know, she bears the scars of everything that has happened to her, quite literally, and that she's not going to be defined by them, but she is going to celebrate them. I, th- I actually thought it was nice to see social media filled with some positive messages for once, because it's been p- pretty vitriolic over the last wee while. And I guess um, it also started to put into perspective the fact that last week we heard lots of um, names veterans um, deciding to stand down from Parliament next time round. So I think that's about 13 or 14 SMP MPs, MSPs, including four cabinet secretaries. I think we're up to 14 now. 14. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, because Sandra White declared, didn't she, mm-hmm. um, over yep. the weekend. So a number of them are talking about 
age being the issue. And I, I suppose I've, a lot of them will be past retirement age, particularly if they stood again, got elected again and served another five year term. Yeah. And I've been writing about that. Um Basically, I suppose for me, questioning why when you fought for independence all your life, you would choose this particular moment in time when independence feels within touching distance, you'd have thought they might want to carry on. That that must have been a temptation to some extent, I think, to kind of see it through. But then also when you do think of age, I mean, in some cases they're they would not over, not only be over retirement age by the end of the parliament, they're actually over retirement age by the beginning of the parliament and then would be going on another five years. I mean, there, there's just so much in, in that because it is a, it's a hugely time-consuming job. I mean, it's something that just takes over your whole life. And you can understand that actually people have their own personal priorities. They want to spend time with their families. They want to spend time with their their friends while they're they're still able to to do so to so you know while there must be a you know some temptation to see it through just to to know that you would be going through a, another five years of of having your entire life taken up with this and even more so actually if you're campaigning during a referendum as well that there's got to be just that that balance of of thinking well I I can't wait forever at some point I just need to say okay I I need to stop now. Yeah, I suppose what occurred to me, I agree with all of that, um, although I still think if you're driven for independence, it's going to feel, as the First Minister has said, um, like the most historic election for Scotland ever. But also what I think it highlights is perhaps Nicola Sturgeon was going to or intended to have another reshuffle before the election. I mean, she still may. Um but with Derek Mackay going um, and then COVID coming along, perhaps she was prevented from doing a further reshuffle when you'd at least allow a few more of your MSPs to kind of cut their teeth in ministerial posts or be moved up to the cabinet. Because um, she is going to lose, you know, four cabinet secretaries at the moment. Um, come come next uh, May. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a big changeover for the cabinet. I mean, to some extent, I think this is just... Um, a symptom of the fact that the parliament was started so recently, you know, that so many people started in 1999. Mm -hmm. And obviously there was quite a big exodus in the last election and there's quite a big exodus in this one. And that's just a fact of people of around the same age starting at around the same time and therefore all at the same time thinking, actually, it's, I think this is it now. Um, I think and hopefully you'll have a bit more progression in future mm. as there's a bit more of a, a gradual turnover. But yeah, this is going to be quite a, a sudden change yeah. from sort of all the old guard to a lot more, not necessarily younger people, but newer people, depending who comes in. I think that's true, but it's all, I guess it's also a symptom of the SNP having been in power for so long, so it's the same people. Um, mm. But at the end of the day, the age wasn't something that you needed to guess that was going to happen. So I suppose it's looking to the First Minister and thinking, well, what, what is your succession plan? Who is coming up? Who, who in fact, could be the next First Minister? But um, I suppose these are all things to ponder. I mean, actually, I, I've been thinking about that this week because when you we've started to see some of the written evidence of previous permanent secretaries to the committee set up to look at the way the Scottish government handled the sexual harassment allegations against Salmond. And Sir John Elvidge, who was two permanent secretaries ago, has talked about politicians um, the politicians basically not having experience as politicians, um, that he was 
operating in a relatively new parliament and most people hadn't ever been elected before. So they were having to learn about that relationship between civil servants and um, and politicians and how it would operate. And I guess that was a huge learning experience. Yeah, I mean, I thought the evidence from both the, the two um, previous permanent secretaries was interesting. So John Elvidge, as, as you mentioned, and he also talked about civil servants perhaps being quite forgiving about stress that they, they didn't interpret um, what would in another situation be interpreted as bullying as that because they just understood that ministers and cab secs were, were under a lot of stress and they were struggling with the, the positions. That I thought that was quite interesting. And then um, the other previous uh, permanent secretary, Sir Peter Housden, who um, talked about sort of dealing, you know, they dealt with things with ministers informally. The permanent secretary was just uh, sort of expected to deal with it quietly and they did that in a number of settings where that was also quite interesting so it just yeah gave quite an insight into sort of early days or you know the the first 15 years 16 years of the, the Scottish Parliament. Yeah absolutely and I mean obviously that's not going away I think every week that passes when we hear either some of the verbal evidence or the written evidence um, certainly it's keeping our our news stories going isn't it? Mm, yeah yeah I mean whether we actually get the answers I think you know people would actually like I'm not sure because it's you know it's really about the procedure it's about um you know how they how they came to the position of um the judicial review in the end but uh but not really about the substance of the case which is is probably the things that people would actually like more detail yeah no I think you're right I think I think what's interesting for the general public as well if they're interested in these things is you're getting a real insight into just civil service speak as well and it's a different language altogether um Mm. Anyway, and, and just a fear of tackling things, I think, you know. <laughs> well, fear of tackling of... things might be a good segue to the next bit, which is, I think, <laughs> the the bad week. I think there's one contender for, for this, and that's Richard Leonard, the leader of Scottish Labour. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's not been just a bad week, but, you know, a bad few months, I think, if not a bad three years. And, and actually, he's about to be the longest serving Scottish Labour leader, which also seems extraordinary. Um, but it, it, the week ended with a delegation of Labour MSPs basically saying Richard should step aside for the good of the party before it faces complete oblivion at next year's Holyrood election. So not good. No, I mean, it's not, not the position the leader wants to be in going no. into election, not having the, the backing of your, your MSPs. Um, it's been something that's been coming a while. I mean, there's there's been concerns clearly within the party. There's been a number of leaked documents. And, you know, and if you look at um, opinion polls, I mean, a recent one in July, 56% of, of respondents said they didn't know when asked for an opinion on Richard Lennon, which suggests they don't know anything about him or they don't know who he is. Yeah. Um, because you would have an opinion on someone that you knew something about. So um, just the fact that he's he's not cutting through, that people don't recognise him, they don't, yeah, they they don't see him as a leader. They wouldn't be able to name him. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't probably be able to say what his policies are. I think it, that that's the problem for Labour actually is is that it's not necessarily that whether people disagree with their policies, but whether they become irrelevant and people just don't care and don't know. 
yeah. who they are or what they stand for anymore. I mean, I have to say, having been around uh, a number of changes of Labour at the top, it just feels a bit kind of deja vu for me. Um, And kind of on that deja vu theme, so Richard Leonard's now announced that he's appointed Andrew Whitaker as his chief spin doctor to turn around his profile. And Andrew was, of course, the spinner to John McDonnell, um, the Shadow Chancellor, who ended up causing more problems this time last year for Richard Leonard when he said he wouldn't block a second independence referendum. So I suppose I'm quite surprised in a way that Richards then brought Andrew in. Uh, Andrew, of course, also worked for us uh, as a journalist, uh, which is interesting because as did Tom Freeman, who now works for the Greens. And we've also got Jamie Halcrew-Johnson, who was a salesman with Holyrood and has now been elected a Tory MSP. But you can't accuse us of just being uh, based around one party, at least. There's no um, hint of a Lib Dem person yet, (laughs) or SMP. So we've still got those parties to infiltrate. Um, Just waiting for one of us to come out as a Lib Dem. Yeah, Uh, maybe we've got more to do with the state of the parties than we actually know. But I actually, I interviewed um, former First Minister Henry McLeish, who was also a columnist for Hollywood magazine this week about the very subject that subject of where the parties were and Henry's going to be chairing um, a Politics Explained event for us next month. So it's very much in his thinking at the moment. But I guess what was indicative of the state of his own party, the Labour Party, was that in a fairly lengthy interview, he um, failed to mention them once. In fact, I had to bring them in probably as a bit of an afterthought. So we're going to listen to that now. Okay. So, Henry, you've been a junior minister at Westminster, an MP, an MSP, first minister of Scotland. We're now eight months away from the next Scottish Parliament election. We've already seen 12 SNP MSPs say they're not going to stand again. That includes four current cabinet secretaries. Right now, does this feel like a government, an SNP government preparing for independence? <coughs> well, <coughs> There's no doubt in my mind that, you know, that this is a time for reflection. The pandemic has created that. And if you look ahead to 2021, this becomes more of an important election than merely uh, providing the Scottish Parliament with 129 new people. Huge significance now. And I think that has been deepened by the fact that the Johnson government um, has not been over sympathetic to Scotland. I think he's major, made major mistakes. And of course, um, you know, politics apart, the First Minister has done extremely well in handling uh, COVID-19. So I think there's, this will be a very, very different election. That said, um, it's how the SNP get to independence, because as you know, we have a situation whereby the constitutional um, authority lies with Westminster. And Johnson, even if the SNP clean, have a clean sweep next year, um, Johnson still has to agree to that referendum. So while I think that the SNP look in a strong position, um, I do think the debate has to be about, and I describe it as high noon, um, the union has got to waken up to the fact that this is not just nationalism, it's not just the right to be free, it's not about freedom fighters, the kind of brave hearts. The debate has moved on. There's a much more mature debate in Scotland. And I think it's about politics, it's about governance, it's about democracy, 
and it's all about the kind of country you want to have. So a lot will hinge, I think, Mandy, on um, how the, the, the debate develops between now and next year. But there is no doubt that the two alternative parties, the Conservatives and Labour, have to do something significant if they're still going to be in the fight, not only to control the parliament, but to actually decide whether Scotland does leave the union. So we'll come back to what's going on within the SNP in a minute. But just on that point, I suppose, about um, unionism and nationalism. I mean, you know, George Robertson, uh, as we all know, said in 1995 that devolution would kill nationalism stone dead. That's clearly not happened. But do you think that's where the unionists still are playing around? Well, um, God bless George. I mean, I, I, I think he said it um, and, you know, it's lived with him for a long, long time. <clears throat> Look, I think the major difference is that the union, the union is very, very difficult to change. And we're really talking about Westminster and the two traditional parties. This is about history. It's about empire. It's about colonialism. It's about exceptionalism. It's about the absolute sovereignty of Westminster. Really, there's no relish at Westminster to do anything significant that would accommodate Scotland in the modern era. So by definition, that if you've got an immovable institution at Westminster, then what happens in Scotland becomes far more important. And my real concern is, because I've always been someone who's not doubted the wisdom of independence, but always hoped it'd be a choice, which would be federalism. But if the union cannot show that it's willing to change, and, you know, Johnson's talking about coming to Scotland on holiday, you know, festooning us with flags, union jacks. He you know, him and his uh, leader of the House said, well, they don't recognise the border in Scotland. This is not the way to handle a situation. And I think the third point, Mandy, for me, is that the debate has matured. This is not much recognised in Scotland. Scotland is a diff very different place from what it was in 1997 to 99, when we put the legislation through, started up the Parliament. Westminster has yet shown no real interest um, beyond the letter of the Scotland Act in entering the spirit. And so I think that is crucial. And the important factor here is that Boris Johnson shows no empathy, no real interest. He is a diehard unionist. And he's making the mistake of trying to cast this as unionism versus nationalism. Most Scots that vote for the SNP don't see them as the kind of nationalism of Erdogan or Trump or Bolsonaro. You know, it's a civic nationalism. People don't see it that way. And for him to cast the debate is dangerous for the union and will only play eventually into the hands of the SNP. Do you think... Johnson, in some ways, is sort of emblematic of that kind of throwback to that, if you like, that immature argument um, that we have, that Scotland has moved along from, that we have, as you say, a much more sophisticated argument about all these things. Very much so, because it seems to me what, again, is missing from the debate, uh, we have the bizarre situation that, that some people are meeting with Michael Gove or talking to Michael Gove. And, um, you know, in a way, that's deeply insulting, because the issue is this. Scotland could be an independent country. There is still an argument about whether it should be an independent country. But what doesn't enter the debate is what's the case for the union? The case for the Union has just been accepted that since 1707, Scotland has been part of the Union. But beyond that, there's no thinking. There's, it's a soulless argument. 
And quite frankly, if the UK wasn't our banker, you know, providing trade, providing deficit surplus uh, support, trade support, then it has nothing to offer at the present time. Now, has it got anything to offer? I'm not sure. But this is the maturity argument that a lot of Scots who are not nationalists, who are not sympathetic to the SNP, may just say, look, Johnson has opened up a new vista and he's reinforced the point of view that unless the union can find an accommodation, not only for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, but for the regions of England, it's going to continue to deteriorate and it's going to be accused of neglect. And to me, the only final outcome for that would, of course, be Scotland leaving the United Kingdom. I mean, I think I would be, I'd be interested to know what you think about the fact that we're only, I guess, six years on from the last referendum. And one of the strengths, perhaps, for the S side is that the key characters, the First Minister, for instance, and others, have not changed. So they're well rehearsed in all the arguments. Whereas at Westminster, we've seen three different um, leaders of the Tory party, uh, same with the Labour Party. So is there a weakness just in the change in personnel? Well, there's no doubt that the, the SNP have benefited from um, a continuity um, and they have provided um, strong government. Um, they've been weak in certain areas like education and health, but overall their performance has been, I suppose, for most Scots, uh, satisfactory. You see, the problem at Westminster is it is beyond political parties. It's beyond Labour and Conservative. This is really an institution mandate that would still like to rule the waves. Mm -hmm. This is an institution that thinks that absolute sovereignty um, and no conceding of it is the way forward. It's about exceptionalism. And of course, the obvious example was Brexit. I mean, Brexit didn't make the impact on Scottish opinion polls at the time, but it will. We're about to leave in December. And so what you've got is a pandemic that Johnson's handling badly. You've got uh, Brexit whose consequences and implications will be severe and will appear soon. And then you've got attached to that is the whole attitude of a cabinet noted um, for its loyalty, but not for its wisdom. And what you've got then is a kind of perfect storm of issues that will affect Scotland. And that's why I believe that the great tragedy in all of this for me is that nobody has addressed what does the union mean in 2020? What does it offer Scotland and the other nations? And equally importantly, why can't we move to a much more flexible um, federal framework in the UK that in Manchester, for example, they can move on, Wales can move on, Scotland can move on, Northern Ireland can move on at their own speed, in their own way. And if that means that Scotland becomes much more much more aggressive and more ambitious, more assertive, that's fine. But in the absence of any serious debate, the SNP are looking at a one-way road. It just says, keep going and you'll get there. And that's why I find this whole situation quite remarkable. Do you think, I mean, it's probably a rhetorical question to you, but do you think Boris Johnson has um, helped the argument for independence? I think the maturing of Scotland has happened um, over the 20 years. I think there are different issues now to tackle, but there is no doubt that he has given a veneer of indifference to the whole issue. And it doesn't make sense for this to be cloaked in this, you know, facile unionism versus nationalism. That's not how Scots see it. 
Of course, you'll get unionists who want to stay part of the union. You'll have diehard nationalists. But, you know, the majority of Scots are sensible, practical patriots. And they would like a solution that they can get back to their normal lives. Because despite the fact that, you know, we're only six years on from um, the uh, independence referendum, we're still inveigled in every aspect of Scotland's future. Now, I would like to think that we get to a point where Scotland's future is determined and we can start to address issues in Scotland of inequality, of education, of health, of all the things that matter to everyday families. But until we can get to a point where our future is in some way defined a bit better, then I'm afraid we're going to spend our time worrying about Brexit, worrying about the pandemic, worrying about the union, worrying about all these individual aspects that the Scottish Parliament should be dealing with. And that's not a recipe, Mandy, for stability um, or security as we move forward. I think I'll come back to federalism in a minute, Henry, but I think um, I guess one of the arguments that is thrown up about, um, OK, you might not like Boris Johnson, and I think the polls would show that that has helped increase support for independence, that there's no point in leaving a union just because you don't like a particular leader of an elected government. Yeah, but but the problem is that argument has continued to, to swirl around in Scotland. What, what What's the alternative? I mean, how do you counter that? Well, you're right to say that, Mandy, because, I mean, Boris Johnson, to me, if I could put it like this, and it's a bit disrespectful, but he's another layer of irritant in what is a very, very important debate. You can't dismiss the, the situation in Scotland. <clears throat> Neither can you pretend that the union has any of the answers. So what I'm really seeking is a situation which says, look, Boris Johnson is an aggravating factor. Um, a lot of Scots would accept that. His handling of the pandemic, his handling of Brexit, his handling of his cabinet has not really reinforced much confidence in Scotland. So if you take the Johnson factor, that's what he's contributing. But it would be, I think, a mistake to believe that Johnson should be the focus of our attention. The real focus should be, why is it we have a union established in 1707 that is no longer capable of reaching out to every part of the United Kingdom and be willing to work with all these different parts, with different aspirations, different timescales, different ambitions to move forward? So I come back to this point, and I'm sorry to make it all the time, but I'm now convinced that you know the future of um, Scotland will be not so much decided in Edinburgh, but will be decided by London, and whether indeed it starts to take this whole question of um, new forms of government seriously or whether it doesn't. That is the great tragedy. And there's every indication so far that Johnson, with his flags and holidays and there's no border, is trivialising an issue. Now, he may think that it's funny. He may think it's trivial. But that's not the way that it's seen. And I think the other danger for Boris Johnson is that he's pushing people who are not interested in leaving the union. He's pushing people who want to see decent governance. And all of that means is that he's converting, in my view, a lot of people who have always thought twice about leaving the United Kingdom, but he's actually making the idea of leaving the United Kingdom much more attractive. Now, if he thinks that is a serious, sensible, responsible way to be a prime minister, then quite frankly, it's at odds with myself and it's certainly odds with the majority of Scots. 
But that then comes back to the argument that you can't do anything to get rid of them at the moment, which will then feed the emotion around the potential for independence. Absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've said many times in the discussion that that, that is my, my, my fear. Now, when I say my fear, you know, I believe that Scotland could be independent tomorrow. And we have to learn lessons, for example. You take Ireland. Now, Ireland is a completely different situation. But nevertheless, if you look at Ireland as a country, at that time, there's a lot of emotion, a lot of nationalism, a lot of real grievances. But, you know, Ireland has moved on. It's now stable, secure. It's a country more at peace with itself than we are in Scotland or in the United Kingdom. And I think what is happening here is that, and it can't be quantified in opinion polls, really, because the opinion polls since 2014 have not moved much, but there is a different mood. There is more challenging of the union in a more constructive sense. There is a deep concern about its inability to handle the pandemic crisis in the way Scots would like. So what I think you're seeing is, is a quiet, behind-the-scenes revolution in thinking. And so therefore, if there's no countervailing arguments from Westminster or ideas or big ideas for the future, then we will continue to move towards independence. And a lot of people will get to the stage, like me, who will say, look, I want to see some form of flexible federalism. Now, if there is not a hope in hell of that ever being on the agenda or on even the radar screens or becoming legislation in the future, then I think a lot of Scots will want to think twice. And for me, Mandy, the real frustration is, why is it that the union can't change? Is it because Westminster is just a victim of history? Is it so constrained by its own exceptionalism and that doesn't apply just to the Conservative Party. You know, there is a feeling at Westminster, I think, that this is too big an issue. We don't want to think about it. And what they don't realise, in the absence of neglect at Westminster, we will maybe after, before 2021 and after, really identify what the trajectory will be. And for people who want to save the union, it's not what they want it to be. The other issue for me in this, and this is where we will get to federalism, Henry, is that we are living in a moment in time of heightened emotions, particularly around, obviously, the pandemic and lockdown and how that's made us feel, but also Brexit, also Boris Johnson. There is heightened emotion. And what people have failed to do, and I'm sorry, probably yourself included, is to paint a sexy picture of what federalism actually means. So on one hand, you've got emotions around the union, emotions around independence. Does anybody actually get very emotional about federalism? No, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the key problem. But look, let me look at it another way. We currently have a situation where you can have status quo unionism. Nothing changes, stays the same. You can have a situation where you have um, independence, <clears throat> and that's quite clear cut. Your membership of the, union, the UK is terminated, you move on. Now, if you talk about an alternative to, to both of these, then you're talking about some form of federalism. Now, my belief is, speaking to you today, my belief is it's too late. Because an argument, an idea, a vision has got to be established in people's minds and developed over a long period. So we don't have time on our side. So I'm a realist on that. But the other issue is, is the union going to allow 
um, another independent referendum sometime in the future that is a question about a binary question about yes or no to independence. My view in 2014, I even discussed it with Alex Hammond at that time, um, that it would be good to have different questions on a ballot paper. Because look, Scots, in my view, have not yet uh, are not yet enthusiastic about independence. Over 100 opinion polls since 2014 have suggested that barely one or two of them have gone more than 50% for independence. So that means, in a way, that Scots haven't decided. So when we look at this independence, Indy Ref 2 as it's become, why are we not thinking about other decisions that Scots might want to take that should be on a ballot paper? Why are Scots not being offered a choice? Because it could be the final choice before leaving the union. So I'm reduced in a way to thinking that federalism would have been an idea, would have been a good solution for different parts of the United Kingdom. It may be now too late. So what you're looking at is a situation where can we have a choice then for Scots? It's yes or no to independence. And the other problem about um, referenda is that after the debacle of Brexit, you know, an act of collective suicide, it was a binary question. So can we any longer in Scotland have a binary solution to what is a very complex question, yes or no to independence? Now, I think that it's got to be more sophisticated. You're right, it's very emotional just now, Johnson's added to that. But look, we are a country of the Enlightenment. We are a country where we want an age of reason to come in. So I'm just hopeful of a much, much bigger debate, but I'm not sure I'm knocking um, at an open door. And that becomes a major issue at a time, as you say, the pandemic's arrived, Brexit's arriving, and there, is, there are huge issues that we as Scotland and we as the United Kingdom should be looking at. And in fact, we're not. And that to me is a great sadness. Do you not think, though, Henry, the third question has also had its time? I mean, if that had been in 2014, we could have then, if that had won, then there would have been a further discussion. But do you honestly think that following the 2014 referendum, where on the day after that, David Cameron came out and then started talking about English votes in Parliament and uh, more powers for Scotland, that people would have any appetite for believing that a third question, a third answer would... Um, take them any further along the road? Well, I agree with you on the basis that you know, David Cameron's speech was, the day after, was an absolute outrage and set the tone then for another six years of, in my view, indifference and ambivalence towards the Scottish question. Yes, you are right in, in, in implying in your questions that time's running out. I have no doubt that it is. Now, my issue though is it's not this is not an emotional spasm there's no doubt that johnson will heighten the emotional tensions in scotland but you know th there is another issue about um forgetting the emotions and actually looking what kind of scotland what kind of vision what kind of country now i've believed over a long period that there may have been a way to settle that issue within the united kingdom as each day passes i become more uneasy that we'll ever get to that point. So you're absolutely right to say, can we be bothered with trying to intellectually understand federalism? It's tedious, but it's a solution. Churchill was talking about way back about it in, in 1909, you know, so it's been around for a long time. Is it too late? 
possibly. So even if there was an argument, maybe there's not enough time to make it. But thirdly, if we are going to make a decision, I don't want it to be on a 52-48 or 51-49. I would like Scots to be absolutely clear. And, you know, my tragedy is the Labour Party has not yet made that case and may never make the case. Scots have got to be clear what the decision will mean. And will they think that there could have been an alternative? Maybe not. So I'm just hoping against hope that the debate as it is continues to be more sophisticated and we may see an alternative. But you're right. You're right. Look, we live in a real world. This is the politics of the real world. And quite frankly, the, the debate has got to the point where oh, it's like it's like a game where only one team is scoring goals. You know, it's one nil, it's two nil, it's three nil. Once it gets to seven or eight nil, you begin to think, will the other team ever be able to come back? And, and that's, I think, where the union is just now and where any alternative is. Deeply depressing, but you're right. We have to be realistic because we can't carry on like this forever. And Scots will be asked, I think, fairly early after 2021 to take that decision. You know, I hate football analogies, but <laughs> if, uh, if, if, if it is a game of football, I mean, at the end of the day, Boris Johnson... Um, has the has the the referee's whistle, if you like. He can he can stop all of this by saying you can't have a referendum. Now that takes us back again to where uh, at the beginning of this interview, I guess, when we're talking about where the SNP is right now. So there are people, there are lots of mini schisms going on, if you like. But the big one is about not just accepting Westminster telling Scotland that they can't have a referendum. Nicola will now be looking at what she's going to put in a manifesto. Should she just say, we will have a referendum? Well, for all intents and purposes, I think that the Scottish public have accepted in terms of the machinations of the SNP and their ongoing commitments that this is what it will be about. And now, it's quite clear from the polls that a lot of people support independence that do not support the SNP. So there's lots of complications about that. But look, she'll be faced with a situation with many factions in her own party. Some want to go quickly. Some want to be more assured that they're moving positively. Um, but the issue does become uh, a crunch point where if in 2021 the SNP win a majority of seats, maybe convincingly, maybe not, is that a mandate? And then we get into the arguments of how do you define a mandate? But if she gets to that point and the other parties have continued to do as badly as, the, as they have done, you know, it's very hard to say at Westminster or anywhere else that Scotland shouldn't get a second referendum. Now, my main criticism of Labour's anti-second referendum and the Conservatives is it looks anti-democratic. It doesn't wash. Are you really saying we don't want a referendum because we're going to lose? That is not at the best basis for opposing a referendum. So I think the pressure on Johnson will become significant if the SNP sweep the boards in 2021. But it still comes down to that point then. If Johnson continues to play the game as he is doing, what's the option then? That's when I think the SNP may start to have problems because you will have a very, very angry uh, SNP membership who will be seeking ways to take that forward. Now, my advice is that for Nicholas Sturgeon is to stick by the rules of the Constitution, stick by the rules of the laws that she's got to operate. And I, my belief is that if there's a convincing win for the SNP, then there's no doubt that the union argument from Boris Johnson will fold 
and there will be a referendum. Now, let's remember that they're having a vote in America with a populist, authoritarian nationalist. It's called Trump. Now, what he's trying to do is to rig that election for his own benefit, leaving him aside. My fear is then that politics in the UK will start to deteriorate if Johnson says, well, OK, we'll have a referendum. And they've got this harebrained scheme running, um, in Michael Gove's mind at least, that you would allow Scots in England to vote. Yeah. Now, so so I think we're, we're looking at some very, very difficult territory. Um, uh, and, and clearly, uh, much will depend on the outcome of 2021 Scottish Parliament election result. On the other hand, my main plea to Boris Johnson is to start acting like a leader. His problem, Mandy, is he still thinks he's campaigning. He's got a cabinet, as I said, with more loyalty being offered than wisdom. And what he's got to start, stop doing is campaigning where you announce something every day. You know, we want to be world beaters and this, that and the other. We're never world beaters. Then he moves on to his next issue. Johnson has got to grow up, grow into the job and accept that one of the big issues on his in uh, tray is the question of Scotland. Unless he starts to um, do that, he'll only push more and more people to the SNP, more and more people towards independence, and he single-handedly will have taken the mantle on that doorstep that uh, uh, where, where the previous Prime Minister was many years ago after the, the independence referendum. He's now going to take on that mantle in which the only outcome will be the crushing of the Union and, of course, Scotland leaving. He's got huge responsibilities, and he's got to start and grow up and show them. Henry, you talk about Johnson's cabinet and refer to wisdom and loyalty. Now, we all know that the strength of the SNP from, um, you know, from being in government in 2007 through has been that strength of loyalty and wisdom, I guess, because of the grey beards and those that have been around for a long time. So going back to the beginning when I was saying to you that she, she Nicola is about to lose a lot of that wisdom and loyalty with so many MSPs with so much experience leaving. Is that something she should be worrying about as she prepares for the, this election, thinking about the cabinet after if she wins, and then thinking about independence? Yes, uh, on all three counts, because, I mean, there is no doubt that if you lose experience from your front bench or from your cabinet or from your party uh, membership then in, in, in the parliament, then that's going to be pro problematic because experience means that people you can build up respect about them. Uh, They've been there for a long time. They're acknowledged familiar faces. So the first issue is that when you lose so many uh, in the run-up to an election, it does tend to put into people's minds, why are they all leaving? And to be honest, there's lots of very serious reasons why many of them are leaving. So that would be point one. I think what, the what do you think they are? What do you think those serious reasons are? Well, in some cases, um, people want to have a life. Look, I was in pol elected policy for 30 years. There is an issue about that. Secondly, there's no doubt that social media is vicious, uncompromising, and destined to drive a lot of people out of politics. Why would you, as a, a somebody in their 30s or 40s with a good family life and um, good job, want to put yourself into this situation? And I think that's why you know the, the, the social media has got to be really cleaned up. I think thirdly, Let's not all believe that everybody in the SNP is a diehard nationalist. And um, there's a lot of people who had been quite happy 
with a kind of federalist um, uh, Scotland, uh, a federalist UK with, with Scotland in it. So there may be political reasons. I think the other point is that some people are looking ahead and thinking, well, is there going to be a stramash um, when Alex Salmon writes a book or Alex Salmon possibly seeks revenge against, in his words, the plotters? So I think there's massive uncertainty now around in the minds of many, many people um, who have been loyal um, uh, and, and served the country well, but they're having thoughts. And of course, let's be honest, Mandy, there is also an aging process that people do get older, do think, well, maybe I could be doing something different. And But on the other hand, they may be looking ahead and thinking, well, is Johnson going to relent? Will there be an independence referendum? Will there be any referendum in the next three or four years? So I think it's not so much a specific issue. It's the combination of weighing on many um, loyal supporters who think it's maybe time to move on. Now, the other side of the equation, of course, is what that does for, for um, Nicola Sturgeon, because both with, her, with Salmond and herself, they provided strong, charismatic leadership over an extraordinarily long period and still in power. Um, it really depends how the public view that. So she's got the twin problem, I think, of one, the public perception that in key areas like education and health, the SNP could have done better. Um, and so therefore, there is a bit of a, a concern there. She's also in a situation where if there's any further problems with the pandemic, which could emerge, or with the possibility of salmon, that the public may take a different view of that. So I think the worries are with her. I think you're right to point that out. And it will be interesting to see how she um, uh, deals with that in the run-up. But let's remember, they are stepping down at the next election. So they will be there and thereabouts until the last three or four weeks of the, the, the campaign. And a lot can happen between now in relation to Brexit, the pandemic, and um, Boris Johnson's attitude, and indeed whether Alex Salmond is going to create uh, some stushy um, uh, as we move forward. Um, it's not the best position she's been in, and I think that it must be problematic uh, as she looks forward. But on the other hand, my concern is that after 20 years of devolution, after the SNP coming to power in 2007, both the Conservatives and Labour have failed to lay a blow on the SNP since then. And it could well be, Mandy, that it's not so much the quality of the SNP which might be under threat, it is actually the quality of the opposition over that long, long period that has allowed the SNP to get into such a position of dominance, not necessarily because of their brilliance, but actually because of the weakness and the failure of the traditional parties to gain a footing in post-devolution Scotland and run with, for example, the alternative I've talked about, federalism, which in many respects now uh, looks doomed. Well, I suppose it's telling that in 33 minutes, you and I haven't talked about the Labour Party and you are still a Labour politician. Yes, I am. And I mean, I, I've always said, you know, because of my grandmother, my grandfather, mother, father, you know, I still believe to this day that the principles um, that, you know, fired the party to be a party in 1900 and to enter Parliament after that to be the voice of, at that time, working people, it still has a strong resonance uh, with me. I'm only sad that, you know, after um, over the last 10 years uh, we've had Conservative governments, I've been even more concerned that we've, in Scotland, for example, we just lost traction 
and we just have never woken up to Scotland being a different place as a consequence we are where we are on the other hand let's never forget that that the Labour Party does carry forward a lot of deep seated ideas good principles good thinking and on the areas of equality on the areas of race um, on the areas of uh, just a caring society we can matter but look you've got to adapt we haven't adapted to devolution we have not haven't adapted to the threat now that Boris Johnson poses to us in Scotland and you know someone says we are where we are I'm very depressed about the situation but it doesn't stop me from trying as much as possible to a <clears throat> suggest there is another way forward b keep supporting the Labour Party and see to advise people who think that it won't return. I think it will return. And you know, politics is a long-term game. I was in it for 30 years. I've been in public service for 50 years. And who would have thought, um, Mandy, that in 1987, when I was first elected to Westminster, we stood on the stairs of Keir Hardy House in Glasgow, and there was 50 of us. The fab fabulous 50, if you were Labour, the people 50, if, if you were the SNP. But look, we now have one. Yeah, it's an amazing, volatile situation, and that's why I think we can never say this will happen next year or it won't happen next year. We live in a very fluid, very fragile, very febrile situation, and if you think like that, then basically you can never determine the future. So Nicola Sturgeon has said that this coming election is going to be the most historic in Scotland's history. Do you think that's an exaggeration? Well, it, it will only be the most historic and significant election if they win and they are able to prize uh, a referendum out of the Westminster government. I mean, at one level, she's right to say that it's a hugely important and because the SNP are looking through the prism, if that she gets a resounding result, she can hang that out to Johnson and say, look, you cannot fight the people, although you might want to fight the SNP. That would be very, very difficult for Westminster to turn down. On the other hand, it will be significant as well that if Scots don't return the SNP in the numbers, they think, and that would give a possible breathing space in terms of the mandate for Boris Johnson. But look, Mandy, I mean, it's, it's not just me. I'm sure that yourself and other people throughout Scotland, why have we got to this particular place? Why is it we have opposition parties in Scotland where the SNP, after 13 years in office, are still running successful governments and treating and acting as if they were independent? What has gone wrong that in terms of um, leadership? I don't believe that Scots have gone wrong. I believe that people will respond to items and issues and suggestions um, as they move forward. And what I think the Labour Party's really got to be concerned about is that, you know, Richard Leonard is right to be talking about <clears throat> listening to the teachers and <clears throat> looking at the question of social care. These are practical policies and Richard's to be congratulated on it. But politics nowadays in Europe, in the Trump world, in the UK are about bigger issues, bigger moments, bigger movements, bigger ideas. It's a sad, sad situation in a way that a lot of the education, the health, all the practical bread and butter issues are put to the side and we concentrate on these issues. But look, that is the context of Scottish politics. 
And that's why Labour in particular has got to say, and Keir Starmer's got to say, you cannot continue union in this particular way. Something ra radical has got to come up from the Labour Party, which has got to accept that Scotland's different. Scotland has moved on. Scotland is mature. Scotland is, is trying to be a, a modern, progressive, democratic society. And let it be. Now, if that is the case within the union, fine. But the alternative is it can be the case out with the union. And that's a really important point for Scots now, because in 2014, the economic arguments won through, the currency arguments won through. After Brexit, that these no longer hold to the same extent. You're on a different, on a different, sorry, the football analogy, they're on a different playing field now. The conditions are very different. And that prevailing wind that was behind Westminster is no longer there. And so therefore, um, let's not accept the inevitability of anything uh, in the Scottish elections next year. Let's start now to create an environment of discussions and ideas which starts to reflect where political parties should be and not necessarily suffering at the, at the hand of the total dominance of the SNP. And maybe the future for a Scottish Labour Party is in an independent Scotland, Henry. Well, a lot of people I speak to in my old constituency say to me, look, Mr McLeish, I understand your position, but look, I only want an independent Scotland for it to be either, in some respects, socialist or some people use the word Labour. But they then add, and I want it to be fairer, and I want it to be about tackling the big issues that Westminster doesn't want to do. I want to be like Scandinavian countries, where they're not worrying about the next war they want to get involved in. They want to be in Europe. So there's some you know, huge issues there um, that, uh, that a lot of Labour people are saying, well, look, we can't carry on as we are. Let's be independent. And if that's the case, then Labour uh, could win. And of course, the SNP, one big issue the SNP have maybe never um, answered or big question is, in an independent Scotland, do they remain as a Scottish Nationalist Party? What do they morph into? What do they become? Um, and so therefore, a lot of people think that an independent Scotland would be a very exciting Scotland. And for a lot of Labour voters, and they're more and more coming round to the fact that if we resolve this issue and we are independent, then there's a big prospect. But, but whether we're in the union or out of the union, Mandy, for the Labour Party, there's got to be a lot of rethinking. And quite frankly, you know, you hear all this discussion about leaders and leaders. It's a bit like Scottish football. We've had, you know, um, an amazing number of Scottish football managers since 1956. We're currently qualifying in no international qual um, competitions. And so therefore we sack the manager and nothing improves on the pitch. So we've got to stop focusing on leadership and issues uh, on leadership and start to concentrate on what matters to Scots. Capture their mood, capture their vision, capture their ideas, give them something upbeat. Currently, we're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, a Westminster of not really interested and very ambivalent towards Scotland, an SNP that wants to talk Scotland out. And Labour is still in the middle of all of this, along with the Conservatives, actually looking for a role in a modern world. I can't understand why that's happened over the last 20 years, but I do believe it cannot continue for the next 20 years because that would be a, an enormous tragedy. Okay, I'm not going to forgive you for yet another football analogy. But So the question everyone wants to know from you then, so have you moved to yes? <laughs> well, <clears throat> the perennial question. 
I am trying, and this is just getting a free plug for myself, I'm trying to put a book together just now, which may be entitled High Noon, in the sense that what is the settled will of the Scottish people? And it seems to me that I will continue to argue that the union should be bigger, better, bolder than currently is on offer from the Conservatives and Johnson and Westminster. Now, as I move forward, I'm going to stick to that. On the other hand, I am still of a mind that Scots should be given the choice between another alternative and independence, and that other alternative is not status quo unionism. And if that fails to materialise, then I will have to reflect further. I mean, I've been reflecting now for so long, Mandy, it's becoming quite it's becoming quite stressful in addition to the pandemic. But seriously, um, I have tried my best. I have tried to capture what I think Labour should be about, tried to capture the modern Scotland, the modern movement, the Scotland going places, a union that's not going places, but is reluctant to let anyone else go places. Um, and I've just about got to the point where the only alternative looks like independence, but I'm not giving up at this point. <laughs> I knew I'd ask you a binary question and get all that fancy football footwork going on. <laughs> well, stop using these football analogies, Mandy, but look, I, mean, I think you would agree that, that you, know, you, you know, the editor of the best political magazine in Scotland, you know <laughs> the insides of everything that's going on. But I think hopefully that, that there is a debate to be had in Scotland, which we hadn't have we haven't had for 20 years. I like, would like that debate to take place. And if the conclusion of that debate is that we are independent, then that will be a decision that Scots will take. But apart from high noon, the settled will issue is something that John Smith talked about in 94 at the Dundee Labour Party conference. He talked about unfinished business, and he thought at that time the settled will was devolution. John Smith was right. But 26 years later, what is the settled will of the Scottish people? And I have to be convinced that we get to a point where we can really identify what that is and not necessarily it be a debate dominated as it is by the SNP. That's not a criticism of them. That illustrates how powerful they've been to get one idea, one policy from one party to dominate politics for so long. It frankly is difficult to find anywhere in the world that that has happened. That was great. Right, Henry, I'm going to let you go and de-stress now. So, Jenny, this is the bit of um, the podcast where it started off as a kind of, I got to rant about anything I like, like some old uh, nicotine stained drunk in a pub. Um, but it's moved on a little bit. It's become a bit more thoughtful. Um, and I just wondered, have you got anything that's been a particular bugbear this week? My my particular one this week is about the Jers figures, but not so much about the figures themselves, although it does get a bit tiresome. Just the usual ramming. How this, you know, this proves the point that they'd already made, and and you know, backs up the position they already hold. Yeah. Uh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. But no, my particular annoyance, which uh, is um, has been annoyance of of many women, I think, is a particular article by uh, Michael Black in the Times about the Jers figures and about an interview with with Kate Forbes um, that she did with ITV Border Peter McMahon, yeah. the the political editor of ITV Border, and and in this 
otherwise perfectly reasonable article where he makes really valid points about the economic figures and about the points that Kate Forbes makes. He just starts off with this kind of paragraph of misogyny where he refers to her as this scary young girl in the ring and talks about her shouty response and suggests that Peter McMahon was, you know, grateful for being at a distance from her. And I mean it just isn't accurate at all. No. She wasn't she wasn't shouting, she was just defending her point in a sort of normal way when you're you're challenged and you're being emphatic. Yeah. And um and I think just this characterization of a young female politician as being sort of a a silly or scary wee girl that can't do her sums mm. and this kind of really patronizing thing of not I mean, he did engage with the point she made later, but you know, initially not engaging with with the point she made, mm. but but with the person and just the put down of the person. Yeah, I can't in mean, this I... particularly sexist way. Yeah. I read it and you're absolutely right. You started reading it and almost just it turned off from the substance at the very beginning. Um, and actually, Peter McMahon, um, he took to Twitter to talk about, the, I mean, he, at the end of the day, he was the person interviewing Kate Forbes. And he said that, A, she wasn't shouting. They were um, obviously recognising the two metres social distance. She was robustly making her points. And I, I think, you know, for people like Michael Glack and other commentators that that basically resort to talking about women politicians as sullen, as sulky, as bitchy, when they might talk about men just being robust. Yeah, I think so. It comes back to also, I mean, Jean Freeman, the health secretary, is one of the people that uh, said she's standing down next year. And she did an interview recently where she talked about, you know, if you're if you're clear in what you want to do, that makes you bossy or nippy. She said as a woman and, and you know, talked about the, the kind of abuse that she gets, sexist abuse, ageist abuse. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, is true for, I think, all, all the, the female politicians and not not only the female politicians, but they, they do get a very high um, proportion of abuse that's um, either sexist or, or threatening or comments on appearance and things like that. They just have no relevance to ability to do the job. Yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's not just politicians, is it? We get it as well. And um, but my husband was saying to me this weekend, how you know how do you put up with it? And I I think we probably end up getting quite a thick skin, and that's not necessarily a good thing in other circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm actually surprised that I haven't had that much, despite you know, sort of things I've said on uh, TV and radio, and generally when you know have had comments back, it has been about things I've actually said rather than appearance. But I feel like I'm an exception to the rule that you generally do get abuse for that, things that yeah. are completely irrelevant. Yeah, and I think people, you know, you don't know who these people are, and it's all anonymous, and um, and it is quite difficult just to be able to to let it wash away. But um, I thought Michael Glacken was a mature journalist who should have known better. Um, so perhaps on this occasion, it's journalists should do something about that. Yeah, and I think there's also just, you know, you've got to have an awareness that it's actually really difficult doing these kind of interviews for politicians. And Kate Forbes has been in the job for, you know, six months or so. It's not, there's not just an age thing, there's just an experience thing in terms of, um, you know, how well you can just bat off arguments. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to defend your position robustly for anyone, I think, without without coming across as angry or defensive or anything like that. So 
I mean, particularly considering how the length of time she's been in the job, you know, she, I, I think consideration should be given that she's done amazingly well in that, that time because it is, you know, a very challenging thing to do to be in that senior position. So I guess in this occasion, Jenny, I mean, normally we, was, we we kind of sign this off by saying politicians should do something about that. But perhaps in this occasion, a journalist should have done something about that. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.